Hello and welcome to today's episode of the ABCs, Authors Between the Covers. What makes successful authors tick? What does it take to sell that manuscript? Is self-publishing a good option? Or is selling your book to a big publishing house still the only way to fly? What about keeping up with your first big success? We'll talk about all this and more on today's show, hosted by journalist and publisher Hope Katz Gibbs, author of Truly Amazing Women Who Are Changing the World, and PR Rules, The Playbook. Hello, welcome to this month's episode of Authors Between the Covers. I'm Hope Katz Gibbs, host of the show where my team and I produce this broadcast on our incandescent channels, incandescentradio.com and incandescent.tv. We couldn't be more thrilled to introduce you to today's guest, New York Times bestselling author Jay Shetty, author of the new book, Eight Rules of Love, How to Find It, Keep It, and Let It Go. Powerful stuff, right? Welcome, Jay. Let's talk about your impressive background um, and remarkable experience in the self-help world. So what what led you to write this book at this time? Oh, so many things. I'd say the first thing is, I think during and after the pandemic, there were so many relationships that didn't make it. Some got stronger. I think we were tested by long distance relationships. I think a lot of people felt further apart from the people they love and didn't have the opportunity to necessarily get closer to new people. And I think what I started to realize in my life was that when I looked at this 75 year study that Harvard did on human happiness, they found that the number one indicator for human happiness was the quality of our relationships. And that's no surprise, I think we all know that. But I think what we've never been taught to do is how to build healthy relationships, how to have healthy conversations, how to have difficult conflicts, how to manage challenging relationships, romantically family friends, And I saw so many people in my life who were doing really well at their career, but they didn't have a partner and felt unfulfilled. Or I saw people who felt that they were incredible parents and had beautiful relationships with their children, but they felt incomplete because their relationship wasn't healthy with their partner or they didn't have one. And so I started to notice that finding love, romantic love, seemed to be a real missing link for people in their journey of life. And I realized that it wasn't any of our faults. It's just that we had never been exposed to learning how to do that. And I felt that if I could research, study, reflect, uh, whether that was from ancient wisdom, whether it's from modern science, whether it was from working with my own clients, whether it was speaking to friends and family, I wanted to find a way to create a set of rules, and I chose eight rules in the end that could help people navigate everything from meeting someone to dealing with heartbreak through to the conflicts and the challenges that come in between. I I really, really wanted to do that. And I'm so glad that I got the time to do that. I feel very grateful and honored to have had the time to actually put this book together. 
Yeah, it's it's an incredible book. I love it. It's uh, and I loved your first book too. It's just so great. Thank you. Thank yeah, you for so taking helpful. the time to read it. Yes, of course. Have you already read this one? Yeah, they've, they've sent me a copy. Oh wow, <laughs> you, that's probably one of the first. Um, uh, I haven't even got one of those. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's amazing. Did you read it back, front to back, or you just read bits so far? No, I, I did, and and I'm curious about your the rules. So, what made you decide on these eight? Yes. Yeah, so it was hard. Uh, it was hard to choose which rules. Um, and there were a few rules that I followed to choose the amount of rules. The first was that I really wanted the book to be an arc from preparing for love to perfecting love. I really wanted to create this arc of going from the journey of being alone, being single, dealing with the emotions and feelings that come with that through to without giving too much away for readers, I, I really want people to read it and go on the journey with me, but getting to a point of experiencing love everywhere. And that was the first key thing. I said, I want this book to, to move through this journey because even though love is not linear and it doesn't always work like that, I do believe that we all look for advice at transitions. We look for advice when we move in. We look for advice when we break up. We look for advice when we're about to get married. We look for advice when we're single, we look for advice in these transitions. So the book is defined with these transitions. And I think the eight rules cover all the key transitions that we go through in a relationship. So like I said, whether you're in a breakup, whether you're dating, whether you're introducing someone to your family, whether you are, are struggling to figure out whether someone's right for you, the book answers all those questions. The second thing was I, I wanted a number that aligned with relationships and to me there is no more beautiful number than the number eight because it's uh also represents infinity uh it also represents the journey of love i believe which is like i said it's not linear it's this circular cyclical you know winding meandering journey that we all go on and to me, the number eight just truly embodied all of that uh so i wanted the number to represent you know the the infinite nature of love the infinite nature of relationships uh, and, and I wanted it to be manageable. I wanted each rule to be so deep and powerful that it would last the test of time. So I believe that these rules are not rules that will run out tomorrow or when we use a new dating app that these rules will go out of fashion or maybe in the future when we're dating in the metaverse and, and we're meeting people digitally. Like I think these rules, I believe these rules will last the test of time. They're, they're timeless and they're universal. It doesn't matter what language and culture. And I think that's what was so critical about picking rules that were not bound by time and space. And so I had to be very selective over which rules we had. Yeah, and I, I think you did a great job choosing them. I love that idea of the Mobius strip. Eight is my number too, so I appreciate that as well. I also really appreciated the advice on letting it go because that's right the hardest thing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, I, the subtitle of the book is obviously how to find it, how to keep it and let it go. And the finding is actually a, a trick on the mind. I think I don't actually believe that we find love. I believe we create love. I believe we build love. Mm -hmm. And I think the idea of finding something is, is actually misleading, but I think that's what we think. And hence, hence I use that in the subtitle. I think we think that we have to find love, but in the book, I reframe that. And, and letting it go too, I think, you know, how to find it, how to keep it and how to let it go. I think that was the part that from anyone who's seen it so far, and not many people have, have seen the book so far uh, that I've talked to, obviously, because it's not out. But 
when people saw the let it go, they were like, oh, Jay, I actually really need that because I can't love again if I don't learn to let go. And sometimes letting go comes off an unfortunate circumstance. People lose their partners to a terrible disease or illness. Uh, someone uh, loses their partner because of, you know, challenging situations and, and that person moves on, but you don't. And I really wanted to help people recognize that you are not loveless or you're not less loved if you have to learn to let it go. Uh, and, and I think that was a really important thing to cover. Yeah. And for a lot of people right now, especially post pandemic, it's loving ourselves, yeah. right? So interesting. So what did you learn while writing it? Oh my gosh. Uh, that, that's why I said it was such an honor writing the book because it's, it's fascinating that even as someone who I, I believe love is something I think about a lot and read about and, and serve people and help people with when you, when you get to study something like, you know, I spent around two years putting this book together and I, I think there's so many things I learned, but one of the things that I think stood out to me is that there are stages and processes to create and build love. I think when we talk about finding love, we, it's almost like finding treasure. We expect that X marks the spot, you dig it up and then it's there. You have this treasure chest and it's perfect and it's glowing and it's shimmering and it's beautiful. Whereas love doesn't actually work like that. There are stages and steps and processes to actually build love systematically with someone. Now, I'm not saying it's boring. I'm not saying it's a, a formula. But what I am saying is that there's, I think we all understand that there's layers to love. There's levels of love. It's not just like, oh, we went from liking each other to falling in love. And I think that's what we often feel like it is like, oh, we liked each other. We say, I like you. And then a couple of months or a couple of years later, we're saying, I love you. And it's, we've done it, right? And so I think what I really learned was that there are these levels, there's these stages, there's these layers of love. And that requires peeling back ourselves and peeling back the other person and, and kind of reconfiguring at each stage. I think we often think of love, like I'm saying, as one platform. Like we went from the like platform to the love platform. And, and actually, it's a lot more of, okay, well, you reveal a layer, I'll reveal a layer, and then let's see what happens there. Okay, I'll reveal another layer, you reveal another layer. Okay, let's see what happens there. And so there's a lot more collaboration and, and configuration than there is just falling madly in love as an as a open statement. So I think that was one of the biggest things. And I don't, think, I don't think that idea has really been properly presented yet because uh, I, I just, I think, the language and vocabulary around love has rarely been levels and layers and stages, but has far more been just falling in love, believing in love and having love and holding on to love. Yeah. And I think how um, the divorce statistics are remarkable. I'm actually working on a book called Why Divorce? Five Reasons to Leave. Oh, wow. So that people can understand, you know, they're not alone and yeah. It's complicated and the premise is never cut what you can untie. Yes, absolutely. This idea, right? Because once you do have love, it doesn't just evaporate when you decide that you don't want to be in, in a partnership. Totally, totally. Absolutely. How did your experience as a monk feed into this? So when I lived as a monk, I spent a lot of time studying the Vedic literatures, the Vedic teachings, uh, V-E-D-I-C, and which comes from the books known as the Vedas. And 
although I studied them as a monk, they don't just speak to monks. They, they speak to humanity. They speak to society. They speak about marriage. They speak about love. They speak about the stages of life. They speak about the steps towards love, particularly, I mean, they, they talk a lot about steps to the love for the divine, but, but those were the steps that I was able to reflect on and observe and then reconfigure it for our world today. So for me, even though I studied them as a monk, they're not, they weren't written for monks or they weren't built for monks. And so I was very fortunate to gain a much wider understanding of life, love and learning through that process, even though I learned it in a very particular order of life. I think the other thing, the big thing that I took away, I only realized afterwards I basically, well, not basically, I essentially received three years to figure out myself. And so what I received during that time more than anything was three years dedicated to self-awareness, learning about my values, learning to have a sense of self-respect and self-esteem. And I don't know where else I would have found the time to do all of that. I... You know, I went to college and you're there for three years and you're too busy trying to get good grades and also getting to know other people and getting to know yourself in a certain way, but not in that deep uh, way of being comfortable being alone, being comfortable in solitude, being very happy being alone. I think those were the skills that I gained during being a monk. So then when I, when I left the monastery and then when I thought about relationships, my overall view I tell some stories where I still made mistakes and I have still of course made mistakes since I left the monastery I'm not not perfect or haven't figured it all out but I think it gave me a better sense of what a healthy relationship with myself and someone else looked like I, I think the mistake we often do is we have to remember that a healthy relationship with someone else doesn't mean an unhealthy relationship with ourselves and I think that's what I stop sacrificing so what led you to be a monk I'll be honest and say that what really led me to be a monk was this idea that I was looking, there's a you know beautiful statement by Martin Luther King where he says, well, if you have nothing to die for, then you have nothing to live for. And I read a lot of Martin Luther King when I was growing up. I read a lot of Malcolm X. I also read David Beckham and uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. I loved autobiographies. I was always fascinated by people's true stories. And... I unconsciously, I definitely didn't know this at the time, but I unconsciously consciously was looking for something to die for and something to live for. Like I was, I was looking for that and I didn't know what it was because doing good at school or thinking about like getting a good job, like that didn't seem like that could be it. I just felt like I was like, I just had that inside of me, that feeling. I was like, that can't be it. Like just creating a good, that can't be it. There has to be something more. And when I, and I didn't know that, that that's how I was thinking that this is purely in hindsight at the time I was just experimenting and I think when I heard a monk speak for the first time which I talk about in my first book Think Like a Monk he was talking about service and he was saying the greatest thing you could do is use your skills your talents and your abilities to improve other people's lives and to help other people and I thought wow that's that I've never heard that before like everyone's talking about how to make money or how to do this or how to do that and there's nothing wrong with those things but what he was saying was, how could you do all of that by creating an impact? So like, it's, it's, it's good to have money. It's great to have a, a happy job and great relationships and 
be happy with your family. Those are not bad things. Those are not the wrong things. They, they're fantastic. But what if all of that was created through a life of trying to help other people and improving other people's lives? Like how incredible would that be? And, and I think I was so intrigued by the concept of having three years to master, well, not three years at that time. At that time, I you know, uh, was open to the amount of time. I thought I'd do it for the rest of my life. But I was like, how interesting would it be if for any number of years, I would be able to master my mind. Like I'd be able to overcome envy and I'd be able to overcome comparison and I'd be able to overcome negativity. Like what if I could really do that? Wouldn't that create the greatest joy in my life? And so I think there was a part of me that really believed that the path would help me master my mind and that that would be a worthy pursuit because that was the pursuit that would lead to success in all other pursuits. And so I think that's the service element and the self-mastery is what led me to wanting to become a monk. And so last question. So you've, uh, you've touched billions of people clearly and have had incredible uh, success in the way that most people define it. But what are some of the guiding principles of your ideology that go deepest inside of you and that why you think people just really want to follow you? The first one I'd say that I, and, and by the way, all of these things I'm about to share, they're things I have to practice and refine daily. So these are not platforms. They're all things that I grapple with in my mind and heart and gut on a daily basis. These are not places I've arrived to. They are constant journeys that I'm on. Uh, the first one I'd say is the true purifying of intention the purifying of an intention. What I mean by that is anyone can have an intention, but it has to be constantly cleansed and purified because it becomes tainted by anything else in the world. It, it, your, your intention could be beautiful and pure, but then it gets tainted by envy. Then it gets tainted by materialism. Then it gets tainted by desire. It, get, it, it can get tainted by so many things, which, which starts to skew you off course very slowly and very gradually. And I think the analogy that's often given is the idea that, you know, if a ship just starts going, you know, one degree off course every so often, it, it will end up in a completely different, you know, location or direction. And I think the purifying of intention is something that I hold very deeply that I have to constantly remind myself, why am I doing this? What am I doing it for? What is my reason? Why, why do I believe that this is the way to do it? Do I truly believe that this is the right way? Is there a reason behind this? Like everything has to be highly intentional. It can't just be, it feels good. It sounds good. It must be right. Like it can't be that way. And, and that's a hard process. You know, it's a very difficult process to do that, to really rein yourself back in and, and make sure. So I'd say that's one thing. I, I think the second thing is this idea of, truly deeply wanting to serve through everything I have and seeing it as a responsibility to want to serve. I think Muhammad Ali said that service to others is the rent we pay for our room here on earth. Mm -hmm. and, and I love that idea, such a beautiful idea. And, and I've always held that very dear to, to my heart that, you know, when, when we're serving others, like that's the rent we pay for our room here on earth, as Muhammad Ali says. So I think the idea that everything we do can be a service. I think we, we do that anyway, right? We're doing things to serve our kids, our families. We, we already think to serve others. But 
how could we extend that mindset? I'm not saying we have to go out there and build the biggest charity, although that's wonderful if you can, or I'm not saying you have to go and do something huge. I'm saying that if we just had that spirit and that mindset that any person I meet, any activity I do, even saying hello to someone, even opening the door to someone, even uh, just, just checking in with someone who looks flustered, like all of that counts as service. It doesn't have to be this huge ordeal to make it feel like a service. And, and the third and final thing I'd say is that there's a, uh, there's a, there's a deep discipline towards mastery, self-mastery and mastery of what I'm using. Like there's, there's not a, there's no easy magical way out. It's, it requires deep discipline. I, I, I live a highly disciplined life, whether it's my sleep routines, whether it's my meditation patterns, whether it's exercising, trying to eat right, whether it's uh, trying to master the platforms we use, whether it's really like this book, I've read this book three times, you know, the first time it was too raw and maybe hard. And then the second time it was probably too simple. And then the third time we got the, and you know, it's that, that level of work of it, it's not, it's not perfectionism. That's the wrong word. I'm, I'm not aiming for perfect. I think that's, uh, Oh, I don't think that that's what I'm aiming for. I think it's a, it's, it's mastery. It's like, and when I say mastery, I don't mean like you've mastered it. I mean, you're always striving for getting better and doing better and improving the output of what you're creating and improving the process. And so I'd say those are probably three things that, I mean, there's so many, probably so many other things, but at least those three feel like the root things. Yeah. Well, it's a process for all of us. And I love how you're in it with us, right? You're not, up yeah. <laughs> you're doing it. I'm definitely not. I mean, you know, I, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm just, I just think it's more fun sharing while you're learning than sharing when you think you've learned it all, which, which to be honest, isn't real anyway. Even if someone has become the most successful person in their field, whatever that may be, they still would feel they have so much more to gain and grow and learn. And so I, I just believe that, yeah, I, I mean, in this book, I share so many of my own mistakes with my own wife. I share so many examples of different conceptions I had that weren't quite right. I, I, I love the process of relearning those. Yeah, well, we appreciate it. And that yeah. sense of humility, I think that is the key, right? Loving yourself, loving others one day at a time. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I can't thank you enough for having yeah. taking the time today to be with me and oh, no, uh, thank you for reading the book. I hope you enjoyed it. I did. And my daughter, who just turned 27, she was like, You get to talk to Jay Shetty. Are you? Oh, <laughs> oh that's so sweet. Send her my love, please. I will. I will. So, Eight Rules of Love, I'm sure, is going to be an incredible bestseller. So, thank you so much, Jay, for sharing your wisdom and insights with us. This interview was first conducted for the Costco Connection magazine. You can find the article I wrote for the January 2023 issue on Costco.ca. The information is in the liner notes. We look forward to bringing you more interviews with incredible authors on Incandescent Radio's Authors Between the Covers. I'm Hope Katz Gibbs, founder of Incandescent Inc. Thank you for your time and support. We'll talk with you again really soon. That's it for today's episode of the ABCs, Authors Between the Covers, hosted by journalist and publisher Hope Katz Gibbs, author of Truly Amazing Women Who Are Changing the World and PR Rules, The Playbook. Be sure to check back next week on the Incandescent Radio Network 
for another interview with a successful author who is happy to share their story. Here's to writing your heart out and keeping your dreams alive. Thanks so much for listening.